The views and opinions expressed on the Untold History Revealed podcast are solely those of the individual stating them and are not necessarily those of the Untold History Revealed owners. Now sit back and grab a cup of coffee or tea as we discuss some moments in history that may have been untold or forgotten. Another episode of Untold History Revealed starts now. Hello, gang, and welcome to another episode of Untold History Revealed. I am your host, Sean Donnelly. And I'm your co-host, Marianne Donnelly. For those of you who do not know who we are and what this is about and what we're doing and why we're doing it, we are the owners of Dark Shadow Ghost Tours and PanicD.com, and we've put together this podcast that is kind of a hobby for fun. It's based on research and information we've gathered over the years uh, for other websites that relate to either history, forensics, paranormal, things of that nature. And uh, we decided that we'll do a little weekly podcast. And uh, last season was our, our launch of it. And we had 19 episodes last season and took a small little break. And now we're in season two. <laughs> now we're in season two. Uh, this is uh, episode uh, number 21, actually. Uh, the title's uh, season two, episode two. And today we're going to be talking about, and it's actually 12.37 a.m., so it's actually officially July 4th. Ooh, it's Ooh, the 4th of July. 4th of July. Um, which is kind of fitting because tonight's topic, we are talking about the Traveling Declaration. Um, if you caught our last episode that we just put out, um, we went over the truth about the 4th of July. If you haven't heard that one, please, uh, please go and listen to that one next. But, uh, in that episode, we talked about how they came up with the actual date, July 4th, mm-hmm. um, because there's several several dates relating to which the, the, could have been yeah, used could have used you know many different dates the start of the revolutionary war which was back in april could have used july 2nd could have used august 2nd was the date that it was signed could have used the 4th which they did yeah could have used the 9th <laughs> yeah. it was so you know could have been several different dates but anyways um, when we were putting that one together, we found all kinds of information. Specifically, what I found interesting is that what year did it finally end up at the Smithsonian? It's not, not at the Smithsonian, Smithsonian. The National Archives. Sorry. It ended up at the National Archives. Almost one o'clock in, in the morning. Give me a break. Nineteen fifty-two. Nineteen fifty-two. So from eighteen or dang it, seventeen seventy-six. <laughs> I know we're dealing with a like. 300 years worth of uh, numbers here. It's messing with his head. All right, so from 1776 to 1952, this document traveled quite a bit. Um, And that's what this this episode is about. So we're going to be talking about that in in detail. Along with a few other things. Right, we're going to go into a little bit more detail about the declaration and stuff. But... uh, Okay, so normally our schedule when we put out a uh, podcast is Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. This is Tuesday, correct? Yes? Yes. (laughs) So we're going to have to do another one for tomorrow night so we can get back on schedule after this. Are you out of your mind? Yes, yes I am. (laughs) I'm insane. (laughs) Uh, I have some ideas though. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this, these first few uh, for uh, this season, we're going to be talking about independence and July Fourth, and you know that kind of stuff. Okay. And uh, we kind of skipped over the fact in our in our last one because we were talking about July Fourth, but we forgot to mention that July Third was an important date too. First, second, third, which relates to Gettysburg. And the first, which was our anniversary. And the first was our anniversary. <laughs> That's, I, I think there's paperwork in for that to be a national holiday. <laughs> yeah. 11 years, folks. So she hasn't killed me yet. 
<laughs> Which I'm surprising we didn't get any email. Or was like, Sean, are you okay? You know. I'm just <laughs> oh my goodness. Where have you been? Are you all right? <laughs> so if she ever comes comes on here by by herself. <laughs> then you should worry. Oh, wait a minute! I just wrote out the directions on how to do this. Maybe that was a mistake. <laughs> ah. right. Anyways. Okay. Um. So let's get started. You ready? Okay. All right, so let's talk a little bit about our last episode, just a little bit. Okay. Um, we talked about the different dates and how the Continental Congress convened, and they were presented by the original, or they were presented the original draft by the Committee of Five, mm-hmm. um, which basically was written by Thomas Jefferson. Um, he wasn't actually the, the total sole author of it, but he put together the original draft right. for the declaration and, and presented it on July 2nd. Correct. Okay. And then um, there were 86 different changes and modifications Just to a it. few. Which, you know, to me, the original declaration of, of independence would have been that document that he drafted. And then he said during the, you know, the, when they were making the changes, he was writing on it, mm-hmm. you know, right. the different changes. And that particular document, nobody knows where it's at. I mean, yeah, it's, that one was not kept, and it was, it was just, you know, lost. Yeah, and that was original handwritten document in Thomas Jefferson's handwriting. Yes. And it's basically lost but the one that we know of the declaration of independence that is at the national archives mm-hmm. is not in thomas jefferson's handwriting right it is in timothy matlack timothy matlack's handwriting he's the one that actually copied down word for word the declaration before it was signed but it wasn't well, okay. Now, wait a minute. Let me get this right, folks, okay. because she's done more research, <laughs> and I've been being corrected the whole time. They started signing it on August 2nd. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, and the one that they signed is not actually word for word what went out in the Dunlap broadside. Correct. Slightly modified after correct. after New York uh, agreed Right. On the ninth. Um, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> um, and there were some late signers. Yes. Yes, there were. Um, people who signed after August 2nd, 1776. True. There were. There were We talked several. about them a little bit, but... Um, we did. We mentioned them in the last podcast. Um, did you want to mention them again? Or? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, so the late signers were Elbridge Jerry, Oliver Walcott, Lewis Morris, Thomas McKeon, and Matthew Thornton. But what's exciting and interesting that we didn't mention about them before was actually about Matthew Thornton. And it turns out that there was no, he, they had signed in the order of their colonies from north to from south. north to south and when he went to sign it then he found that he didn't really he didn't have any room to sign with his other new hampshire delegates so he had to sign in a different spot than the new hampshire spot which is interesting um and then of course we did talk about some of the ones who never signed there were some people who didn't sign it against the order of you know the proclamation that came out basically that said everybody better sign this right. um there were still a couple people who didn't and non-signers included john dickinson who actually still wanted reconciliation with britain and one of the committee of five members that we mentioned in the last podcast robert livingston who thought it was a little too early to actually do a declaration of independence he thought it was a little premature so he didn't want to sign it so his name is not on the on the declaration, declaration that he was supposedly part of the yeah. commission that had to <laughs> come up with it. There's so. a good career choice. 
<laughs> so anyways, those are a couple of the late signer and non-signer pieces that kind of are interesting. So I'm going to throw you on the spot here then. There's actually 56 There are signatures 56 signatures on, on there. So with the, those who didn't sign, there should have been how many? Well, that, with that, just those two, those are the 58? two names would be 58. Those are the two names that I know of. I don't know if there I were any so. okay. additional. I don't, know if there were any okay. I don't know if there were any additional members um, because I don't know that they had a specific number um, of people that were coming. Okay. Um, and I just said this, but I'm going to say it again because I, I find this quite interesting. The document that we know of as the Declaration of Independence is, A, not the original. Right. Okay, that's the one that basically is missing, the camp that nobody knows where it's at. Okay, and then number two, it's in the handwriting of Timothy Matlock, not Thomas Jefferson. Right. Okay, um, but there's been several copies of the declaration made now i'm not talking about the typeset copies which was what was the name of it again the the dunlap broadside yeah copies? i'm not talking about those i'm talking about the copies of the signatures and stuff like that there were several of those done and then the the dunlap broadside copies of course which were the ones that were commissioned by continental congress to be sent out across the colonies and europe and things like that but those were typeset copies right very rare too um, we mentioned in the other one that there's they, only 26 the, copies yeah, only known 26. today. Mm -hmm. um, and one sold at auction in 2000, I think it was, for $8, eight million. million dollars. That's a printed typeset copy. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine a handwritten? Yeah. Um, and we're going to talk about how they made these copies, but um, for those of you who really don't know this but the one that's at the national archives um we're not going to have it for much longer there's not much you, you can hardly read it well we're gonna have it we're gonna well, have the document but you're not gonna be able to read it they but. they've sort of they, they have a lot of new technology watching it yeah. and when we when we get to the section today tonight of um you know where it's at now in the National Archives. I'll talk about the $3 million addition to the process that they're watching it to make sure there's no changes and no more deterioration. And yeah. So we're working really hard to make sure that that doesn't happen, that we don't lose that. But yeah, time does... So they call wear. that the engrossed... Am yes. Am I saying that word right? Yes. The engrossed copy? Yes. It was handwritten. Yes. And hand-signed by each individual. Okay. Yes. Um, but they were worried about deterioration. I mean, starting back in the early 1800s. Oh, yeah. They noticed the document was starting to deteriorate way back Absolutely. then. There were even notations, and there's quotes that I have, of literally, uh, doc, uh, not documentation, but um, like magazines and newspapers uh, at the time, where people were actually quoted saying how bad it was. Right. Um, now, the reason for that <laughs> is basically two different reasons. First of all, the topic of this uh, podcast, the traveling. Right. You know, the document moving around, how it was handled. Uh, where it, it was stored. Yeah, where it was stored, and, you know, that kind of thing. We're unrolling it, rolling it back up. Things like that. That that probably had some wear on it. But number two is making copies of it. Uh, you know, it's not like you could lay the thing on a copy machine and just run copies back then. Right. They actually had a process, and we'll talk about that later. But um, they think the copying of it has has. Oh, they know the copying of it caused okay. some damage. <laughs> Folks, can you tell we're married because she's going to correct every <laughs> word that I say. Okay, but that's all right. That's fine. <laughs> This is it's my life. <clears throat> um, but, yeah, the copying of it actually did a, a lot of damage to it. Um, so let's talk about the actual document itself. Um, you know, what kind of paper and that kind of stuff it is. Do you have that stuff? 
Of course. So it was um, actually printed on parchment that measured 24 and 1 quarter inches by 29 and 3 quarter inches. So we're, we're perfect in size there, but you know, it was the 1700s. Uh, and uh, of course they used iron gall ink to do the writing. Um, gall. Yes. G-U-L-L. Iron gall, G- not iron ball. Iron gall. Um, G-A-L-L. There we go. Correction again. Correction again. Um, Iron Gall Ink actually is what they did a lot of writing in back in the day. Um, And it was actually made with just a few simple um, ingredients. Um, What they had, they used gum arabic. And then they used what they call tannins from oak gall uh, in North America. They used other things from other things. But do you know what oak gall is? I have no clue. <laughs> do you ever go? I'm going to find out, though. Yes, you are. Did you ever go, like, down the street and see a tree, and it's got those, like, brownish, gray, black bulges on it, and we're, oh, oh, that tree, it's sick? Yes. Yeah, actually, that's because wasps would actually lay their eggs in the um, branches and things like that of the tree and it would cause an infection in the tree and then the tree would grow these like bulges as it tried to like protect itself a little bit anyway and then the wasps would emerge from that and those those bulges that's actually the iron gall and so or the oak gall and they used that in the iron gall ink they took that and the gum arabic and they crushed it up in a mortar and pestle and then they would add iron from rusty nails that they would have lying around and some water and they would turn it into a liquid that they would use and it would be a brown to black color depending on what um what type of oak tree it came from or whatever because there were different types of wasps that would make their you know eggs get laid in different trees and things like that so it would be slightly differences in colors based on that Um, but then they would either cook it kind of set it or they would let it sit around for a few weeks and then it was ready to use and then they would just take and use their quill pen and they would you know write with it so which is another point to make too if you ever saw that document how the handwriting on it and and how everything was perfectly straight and stuff like (laughs) that that was done with a quill pen too i mean that took some time and some skill to actually do that so well timothy matlack was the scribe for you know the the declaration but he had been working as the assistant um really for the secretary of the congress so he had done he that was his like profession that's what he did so he of course would have really great ability to to get that writing down so it does not surprise me that he, he had done it so well. Um, but when they, they actually used the Iron Gall ink, it would actually come out on the paper black. Uh, and then if you have ever seen the declaration or photographs of the declaration, it's we'll like a brownish a, color We'll probably now. put a picture in some sort of blog there you, post. That would be the, wonderful. On our, on our website. There you go. There you go. Um, but as, as time progresses the iron that they put in the iron gall ink would actually oxidize. And so when it would oxidize, it would actually turn brown on the paper. So that's why it's actually that brownish color now. Okay. Um, the actual document itself, it's it's broken down and laid out in a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have that? There's, there's, yeah, there's five parts. There's five the different parts of it. Um, it's actually, um, the first part's called the introduction. Um, and then there's the preamble, the body, which they have for two sections. And then they have, of course, the conclusion. So in the introduction, um, it's basically describing um, a declaration of the causes that have made the colonies decide that they need to be leaving the British Empire. And then the preamble sets out principles that were already recognized to be self-evident for Englishmen uh, and closes with um, the long train of abuses and usurpations that um, 
designed to reduce people under absolute despotism, and it's their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. That's just a really important portion. Uh, and then they have the first section in the body, which gives evidences of all these abuses that they, they ended up getting um, by King George III. The second section of the body talks about um, how the colonists had actually appealed to their British brethren um, for some you know, help with their grievances. And then in the conclusion, they decide to put in um, basically a lot of the original wording from the Lee... Um, I, I can't remember the word at all. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. The resolution. That, the Lee that, resolution. That, uh, the, uh... So the resolution, yeah. Um, so he <coughs> they, they put in there that these united colonies are and of right ought be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiances to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought be totally dissolved. Now, okay, so this is this leads back to our previous podcast. That was presented, um, correct me if I'm wrong, was that the 1st or the 2nd of July? The, the, at least. They, they presented it for the first time on the 2nd of July. And they approved it. They approved it on the 4th of July. After oh, they made their okay. changes, of course. Okay. But that, the second is when they said, okay, we're going to go forward with this. The Lee resolution. The yeah, the Lee resolution was approved yeah. on the second. And then the declaration itself was presented and then they discussed and then it was approved on July 4th. So that that officially was when they made the decision to say we're breaking from Great Britain. That Lee resolution. That's yes. what was the purpose of it. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, once all this took place and the signatures and things like that, um, the declaration, like we mentioned, it traveled a lot. And there were several copies commissioned um, of the original document to be made. But um, what's some of this other stuff, like we talked about, that could have caused damage to the document? I think we kind of skipped over just basically how they stored it. And, you know, it was it was a scroll, basically, because of the size of it. They rolled it up. Right. You know, and that's not good. And well, I'm sure they didn't all wear white gloves and everything <laughs> handling that document. No, they certainly didn't. And uh, so they did. They rolled it up. And um, they, everywhere they went with it, wherever they wanted to show it off or they went to use it for anything, they would unroll it and then they would re-roll it back up and unroll it and re-roll it back up. And, um, oh, and then, of course, you've rolled up a piece of paper at some point in your lifetime. And you've noticed then that when you try to, you know, flatten it back out again, it wants to curve back up and you kind of have to hold the paper back down so that it can stay flat. Well, all of that actually caused some problems because of the flexing of the paper and the abrasion of the paper against the word and things like that. And it really caused some some major issues immediately. Um, and then, of course, we had all those other printing issues and things like that later that yeah. did so, not help so light. I'm, a, I'm making the assumption that since they noticed the, the deterioration of the document so early um that was probably another reason why they commissioned copies of it uh to me to be made but there were also several other copies made that weren't commissioned Right, By Congress. right. Congress actually specifically said, "I want these copies at certain times." Mm -hmm. But there are just tons of other copy types that are out there um, that are in existence mm -hmm. that weren't officially commissioned. Well, in reality, it's a document that belongs to the people. So, right, and that's why uh, they did start to make some of these copies too. They noticed that people wanted to see it. They wanted yeah. to get to see it for themselves and. And but can you imagine now going to the National Archives and say, hey, I want to make a copy. Get it out. <laughs> they'll be like, <laughs> yeah, they'll be, security? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, you're not going to get to make a, a copy <laughs> now. You, I'm not sure what the... We didn't go into the National Archives last time we were in Washington. That's our, our next uh, trip when we go to Washington next time. We're going to go into the National Archives. We didn't get there last time. We but would probably get lost if we were in there. We Nobody probably would ever hear would. from us again. Yeah, that could happen. But... Um, I'm not sure what the, the photography rule is, but I think you can videotape. I'm not sure. So I guess technically that would be a copy, you know, today. But, you know, other than, than that, I don't think you're getting anywhere close to it. Sorry, dear. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so when after break, we're going to go into the detail of uh, the travels of, of the document. And, and some then, of the copies. And some of the copies. And, um you can explain in more detail the different uh, copies. The one I find actually interesting is the stone copy. Um, that's actually how they... That was the, the the copy machine of the day, how they did it. Um, <laughs> yeah, the copper Because I, I mentioned that to you earlier when it was, it, I don't know, yesterday, the day yeah. before. I'm like, how did they copy that document with those signatures? You know, the, Right. Did somebody forge them or, you know, handwrite it? But they actually, they actually made a copy of the document, and she'll talk about that as we go through the detailed timeline. But basically, there are five different, they consider five different periods of the travel of the Declaration of Independence and the other important documents, which we're yeah. not going into detail, but the Constitution and Bill of Rights, that kind of thing. But um, what was the name? Do you remember the name of the documents in the last episode i found it oh you mean you mean the charters of freedom charters of freedom yes okay that's what they called them but um so there's five main periods the first period consisted of the early travels of the parchment and lasts till about 1814 um the second period relates to the long uh stay of the declaration of independence in washington dc from 1814 uh, until it briefly returned back to Philadelphia in 1876 for the centennial. Yes. And by the way, there's some centennial copies that were made as well. Of course there were. Um, the third period covers the year seven, or 1877 and 1921. Um, and this was the major uh, concerns uh, for deterioration, which... Um, they were really concerned about and then the, they're trying to figure out how can we preserve this right um and this is when they started looking for a permanent home in washington uh dc um then there was a little interlude um during world war ii um which basically I, is, is this when they hit it yeah um, you know, in case of invasion or something like If you think about that, that is one thing that you would want to capture from the United States is the Declaration of Independence. So um, during World War II, they actually hit it for they a little did. while and secured it. Um, and then it finally rested in the uh, National Archives in 1952, and that's where it is today. That's the fifth period. So... Um, Go ahead. You look like you're going to add something. Well, you didn't mention that it the <clears throat> during that fourth time when it was it, it did like get hidden for a little while, but for the majority of the fourth period of its life, it spent time in the Library of Congress. Yes, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, and of course, now, like you said, it's in yeah, the National so now Archives. it's not going to move anymore. It's, no, it's it's, it's got a permanent down, home. Um, but uh, so that's the basically uh, the five different periods of the travel. When we get back from break here, uh, you're going to go through those in detail about the traveling declaration and yes. how it moved around. Yes. Um, so at this point, uh, let's take a quick little break and uh, we'll be back and you can start on that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right, folks, we'll be right back. calendars close your doors and turn off all the lights as twice a month bte radio brings you a new episode of the haunted spotlight 
Sean and Marianne Donnelly of Dark Shadow Ghost Tours dig deep into the archives of the Panic D database and take you inside a different location with each new episode. Learn the rich history and hear the paranormal claims of some of the most infamous and unsuspecting locations from around the country. Ever wonder what roams the property or lurks behind those closed doors? Curious about the true history of that creepy house that sits down the street? Want to know what evidence a paranormal investigation group may have captured? Then find out every other Sunday and tune in to BTE Radio for another chilling episode of The Haunted Spotlight, if you dare. <laughs> All right, we are back, and we are talking about the Traveling Declaration. Um, so we went over the five different uh, periods, so to speak, but... Uh, Go ahead and uh, you can take it from here, and I'm just going to sit here and listen to you because I didn't read all this stuff that you have, and I might learn yeah, something. I have, here, a, so. I have a lot of information. I'm going to try really hard to spice it up a little bit so it's not just names of where it's at and the date. You know, I'm okay. trying to give you a little bit more. A little bit of story. I'll try not to make it too dry and boring, but there's so many places that it actually went, and it's amazing. But um, the very beginning of it actually. It went everywhere that Congress went. So everywhere that Congress was going and where the Secretary of the Congress was at, that's pretty much where the declaration was. So uh, immediately after the signing, it was in the Philadelphia office of Charles Thompson, who was the Secretary for the Continental Congress. Then on December 12th, um, it was threatened because the British were coming. And so they moved... Um, they moved it to Baltimore, Maryland by a wagon. So they put it in a wagon and and they took it away. Um, and then, um, on January 18th, while it was in Baltimore, Maryland, um, Congress got a little bit excited over some of the, um, successes that the military had had recently and so they decided to order the second printing while it was there so if you remember the dunlap uh, burnside was the first printing and that was like immediate july 4 hey let's do this um it was actually january 18th of 1777 that the second printing was actually uh commissioned and the reason that it was commissioned was in the july 4th printing they only really had the names hancock and thompson because hancock of course was the president thompson was the secretary none of the other names were on there of course it hadn't been signed yet anyway um but the subsequent signers even after it was signed in on august 2nd were kept secret kind of like why you said in the last podcast, um, because they were fearful of British reprisals for, you know, treason and yeah, things like case that. case it failed. And, and the Revolutionary War lasted eight years. Yeah. So I'm sure there were, there were uh, bounties on... Yeah. On the heads of those signers. Right. So. And so they, they yeah. actually didn't have that on the original copies that went out. And so on January 18th, Congress says, you know what? We need an authentic copy of the Declaration of Independency that has the names of all the members of Congress that subscribe to this declaration. So what they did was they wanted this to be sent to each of, of the United States, and that's why they had this commissioned. And so they had it commissioned by Mary Catherine Goddard in Baltimore, and uh, she did the, the, the next copies, and these were complete with all the signers' names. Now, was this a copy or a printing? I believe that this was a copy because it had, um, it was called the authentic copy, and it did have all the the names of the signers. And at that point, I believe that it was. I could be mistaken. I haven't actually seen a copy of the Mary Goddard um, copies. If anybody knows, they can of course let us know. Um, but they did have the that next copy made there in 1777. So eventually. Um, it does get 
the declaration itself, the, the original now, we're not talking about the copies anymore, it actually gets to continue to move with Congress. So they move uh, back to Philadelphia again. And so it's there from March to September of 1777. And then on the 27th of September, it gets moved to a place not far from us, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. But it's only there for one day. And I don't know why it was only there for one day, but it was only there for one day. Um, so I'm assuming that, you know, they had a, a, a Congress stop off somewhere along the way for whatever purpose. But it was there. Then on September 30th through June of 1778, so September 30th of 77 through June of 78, it was in the courthouse in New York, Pennsylvania. Or in York, Pennsylvania. York. York, not okay. New York. It was in York, Pennsylvania. So then uh, July of 78 through June of 83, it went back to Philadelphia. So we're bouncing around Pennsylvania with this thing for quite some time. Um, then it goes to New Jersey. So in 1783, it goes to Princeton, New Jersey from June to November. After that, um, they have the signing of the Treaty of Paris and the declaration gets moved to Annapolis, Maryland. And there it stays until 1784, October. Um, then in November and December... So that's after the end of the Revolutionary War. Right. right. Okay. Yes. Because that was in 83. Okay. So, yeah. So um, now in November and December of 1784, it went to New Jersey, to Trenton. And then in 1785, Congress met in New York. So the Declaration got housed in old new york city hall so and it you, stayed there till 1790 did you read anything as to why it moved with 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 the congress who's better to uh take care of it but did they bring it to the meetings or something like that is that it was under the that? secretary's control so, okay, wherever so wherever the secretary was, he was that's, that's where it, where it okay. went yeah um now we're not exactly sure if it moved out of New York City Hall for a short time or not. And it was there, as I said, from um, 1785 to 1790. Somewhere in that time period, they remodeled the building. And they think that while it was being remodeled, it might have been temporarily removed from the building. I just threw a tarp over it. Well, with the way they were, you know, moving it around, they could have moved it out. Or you're right, they could have thrown a tarp over. So we're not really a hundred percent sure that it stayed there the entire time. It may have moved out for a little bit, but for the most part, you know, they think it stayed in New York City Hall. So that was um, until 1790. Well, it turns out that um, in 1789, just before that. Uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs was created, and um, the secretary would have was given custody of the charge of all records, books, and papers kept by the department. And on July twenty fourth of seventeen eighty nine, Charles Thompson actually retires, and so he retires as the Secretary of Congress, and George Washington, then president. Um, he was president, and he surrendered the declaration to a gentleman named Roger Alden, who was the Deputy Secretary of Foreign Affairs. And then in September, the name of that changed to the Department of State. So we've got all kinds of changes happening here in 1789. And, of course, we said that the Treaty of Paris was signed, Right. Well, Thomas Jefferson, who was influential in the signing of the Treaty of Paris, actually comes back from France and he assumes his duties as the first secretary of state in March of 1790. So he gets custody of the declaration back. I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. So yeah. he, he gets the declaration back and... Um, they decide in Congress in July of 1790 to provide for a permanent home um, for our capital. And so they said, we're going to do this along the border of the Potomac River. And so 
they said, let's build this. But while they're building it, the temporary seat of the government goes back to Philadelphia. So guess what? Goes back to The declaration is going to go back to Philadelphia by the close of 1790, under the control, of course, of Jefferson. Anyways. So the secretary, what was the secretary of state? Yes. Okay. Now is the responsibility of the declaration that of the secretary of state? No. No. It's the responsibility of the National Archives. Okay. Yes. We we transferred right. We transferred it eventually to being under the control of different locations rather than people. Okay. Yeah. All right. So now that we're moving back to Philadelphia again, it's going to be housed shockingly in several different locations in Philadelphia. Um, It was housed in various buildings along Market Street. Um, it was at <coughs> Arch and Sixth. It was at Fifth and Chestnut. You know, just it just moved around. I guess that Jefferson didn't have a place he liked to hang. I, I don't know. I, oh, I he thought he had there. a place that he would like to hang his hat, but whatever. He stayed there. He didn't right. live there permanently. So he it kind of moved around with him. In 1800, under the direction of President John Adams... Uh, the Declaration and other government records were moved from Philadelphia to the new federal capital in the District of Columbia. So we now move the Declaration uh, by boat. We're going to take this precious document from Philadelphia to Washington. By boat. By boat. So how do they get it there? Well, they go down the Delaware River and go in the Bay of Delaware, out into the ocean, then back into the Chesapeake Bay, up the Potomac River, and finally into its long water journey to Washington. And it turns out that was its longest water journey that it ever made. Good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I just still can't believe that they decided to take it by water, but they did. For about two months after that, uh, it got housed in buildings that were used for the Treasury Department. And then a year for the following year, it was housed in one of seven different buildings that were standing on 19th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue. Its third home before 1814 in that particular area um, was the old war office building on 17th Street. So that's kind of where it, it kind of was housed for a small time. And then in August of 1814, while we're back at war again with Britain, uh, a fleet appeared on the Chesapeake Bay. And Secretary of State at the time, James Monroe decides maybe this isn't quite safe for us to have this here. And so he writes a letter to a clerk named Stephen Pleasanton, and he writes about this imminent threat to the capital city and, of course, the government's official records. So this clerk, Pleasanton, proceeds to purchase linen, and then he has it made into bags that we then place the precious books and records that we have, including the Declaration, into. And then he gets it um, and he takes it on a journey. Now, we talked about that in a previous podcast. It was something like Washington Burn or the Burning of Washington. It was it was episode 17 right. um, that talked about when he saw this was happening and he ordered all that stuff and if memory serves correctly i have to go back and and look at that but i think the national archives or, or wherever that they actually was one of the buildings that was destroyed yeah when well when um when they were when they were travel when it was traveling it was actually in leesburg virginia when the british attacked Washington and burned pretty much everything uh, that yeah, was so of value. To yeah. yeah, he actually, <clears throat> him and Pleasanton were actually really two individuals who were really responsible for the protection of that at the time. And um, it ended up in Leesburg, Virginia then for a while. Um, it did get returned 
uh, after uh, a little while. It, it returned uh, September of 1814 to the national capital after uh, it was kept in, in different home private homes nice. in Leesburg. If, and we talked about, we talked about that in, in the other episode. So if, if anybody wants any more real details on that, um, the, where, where all these documents went at that time, they can listen to that podcast. But it did get returned back uh, in uh, 17, uh, 17. I've got episode 17 on my mind now. Yeah. Um, back in September of 14. 1814. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So that ended the, the mainly that first period of the life of the uh, travels. Yeah. A lot of travels early yeah. on. Like, a lot. I mean, this <coughs> thing was on the move. We are just lucky that it survived just that first period. Oh, absolutely. I mean... Going out in the ocean? Oh, yeah, there's a novel idea. Let's Almost take this precious document out in the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> Almost getting burnt, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it definitely went through some serious stuff back then. All right. All right, so we're on to the next, next phase of its life. All right, so it goes to, to Washington at the end of 14. Uh, so 1814 to 1841, it actually gets housed in, in four different locations. Uh, and the reason is the Department of the State Records, the location for it kept on getting moved around because the city was growing and they just kind of, I don't know, they just kept moving it, needed more room and things like that. The last of the locations that it was in for that time, later they said, it was just a brick building, and it offered no security against fire, which is one of the reasons that it, you know, got moved again later. Now, during this time period, we really saw an interest in reproductions, um, and so this is when the famous Tyler reproduction happens, when we now see a lot of damage starting to be had. To the declaration. Well, the declaration um, was printed and the Benjamin Owen Tyler printings were the ones that were um, basically commissioned and come out first and it's in 1818. His partner or or was at one point but became a rival later was John Binns and his version of it came out a year later in 1819 even though he started on it a year before that like a year before Tyler um, but um, basically they used both of them used decorative ornamental elements to enhance the text of the declaration and um, a guy named Richard Rush was the ac acting secretary of the state in 1817 when it was finished because, um, well, he was acting secretary in, in, in 1817, but he remarked on September 10th of that year about the Tyler copy saying that the Declaration of Independence um, has been collated with the original instrument and found correct. And he has examined the signatures on the Tyler copies and the original copies. And the ones that were done by Tyler were curiously exact imitations, so much so that it would be difficult, if not impossible, for the closest scrutiny to distinguish them, were it not for the hand of time from the originals. So at that point, they're kind of looking at it saying, oh, there's already some fading that's happening. Um, time is really showing age on so, this already. So Tyler actually copied them by hand. He, Not the wet copies. He copied it. That's a that's a know. bit of contingency. Yeah, we don't know. Supposedly, okay. he did what they called a press copy, which was a wet transfer method. Now, some people today that have been examining it in more recent times say they don't really think that the wet transfer process happened. However, that does not really seem to be accurate and true. Everywhere through the records of the history of this, 
every time they look at the deterioration, they talk about the damage from the wet process, um, the so, damage from all of these. Do you have that to talk about that right now, or are you going to talk about it later, the wet process? Uh, talk- I can talk about the wet process now. Okay, so th- this is the part that intrigued me, and this was the copy machine of the times on how they actually copied they actually copied the document right from one to the other and then from that they made a plate yes engraved plate right kind of like they do money yes basically but go ahead and talk about the wet copying because it's quite interesting basically what they did was they took a very thin piece of paper and what they did was they wet this they dampened it with potentially some chemicals. I don't know exactly what chemicals. I originally thought it was just water um, that they wet it with, but they may have used some other chemicals as well. Um, But they take this, they wet it, and then they put it on top of the actual document. And they press it on that. That's why they call it a wet press, a wet transfer press. And this transfers it kind of like, um, uh, oh, what's the the black carbon paper? Like silly a, putty. Like, well, <laughs> I, I was going more with carbon paper, but okay, silly putty. Uh, but it basically it does. Just you're right, like silly putty too, uh, where it actually picks up part of the ink. part of the ink that was on it actually more like silly putty than the than the, what i was well, thinking about carbon paper yeah because carbon paper takes from pressure right i i yeah the silly putty method i love it okay <laughs> well anyways then the ink was superimposed then onto copper plate so it gets taken well, from when they there pull that copy up it would be reversed right so then they put it down onto a copper plate and they transfer the ink then they remove that piece of paper, and then they literally take and they etch by hand into by the hand into the copper. Yes, um, so so they do all that with engraving. Wow! Probably and by candlelight. Probably by candlelight, and it took three years for stone to complete this process. So the etching onto that uh, copper plate took three years, and. I truly believe that that's the way it was was done. I don't really think that they did it without the wet press. I really think that they did it I with the wet press. I don't see how they could have done it and copied those signatures, you know. So precisely. Especially, you know, all the stuff we know about, well, you know, m- more about, you know, handwriting analysis and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you really got to be very good to be a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Where you sign other people's signatures. Yes. You know the word. I do know the word. But you got to be really good, especially with a quill and all that other stuff. It's like, it had to be. Yeah. I I truly believe that that's what they did because... Getting back to the deterioration, how many times can you actually do the silly putty method? Right. Pulling that iron gall ink off of that document before it starts to just, like, there's none left. Right. And that's what they think was one of the major deterioration processes that happened. They really do think that pulling all that off is why there's so very little of the ink that's visible today. So... What I'm concerned, and you probably don't know this, but it's just something that just hit me. It's like, why did they continue to have this done? And, or a lot. Okay, so there were some copies that were commissioned, and then there were some that weren't commissioned. But why did they keep doing this and keep making these copper things? You think they could do it once, you know, and pay this guy to do it, and then they would take that copper thing and keep it. it well, the like, government did buy it from him. Okay, well, then we need additional copies. There it is. Why keep doing that to the doc, the original document? To me, it's it's that stupidity, you know, because think about it. You only have so much of that iron gold ink that's originally on there that you're going to pull off. And if you ever copied a copy, you know, eventually it's going <laughs> to get... Right. Yeah. I don't know. That's just my opinion. Why they kept doing it. And they did it many times, right? They did it at least two that we know of, for sure. Um, But the stone version was completed, get this, by June 5th of 1823. Almost 47 years from when it was originally signed. So it's like 
just over a month shy of being 47 years when it was actually completed. Um, but when it was completed, um, the commission was for 200 copies on official parchment that would be struck from the stone um, plate. And those have the, the identification engraved by W.J. Stone for the Department of State by order of J.Q. Adams, Secretary of State, July 4th, 1823. And that was in um, both the left and right upper corner. So the portion that says who it was engraved by and by the order of was in the upper left-hand corner. And in the upper right-hand corner, it had the of J.Q. Adams, Secretary of State, and the date. Now, unofficial copies were eventually struck as well, but they don't have the identification like that at the top of the paper. Instead, um, on the lower left corner, um, it's marked W.J. Stone S.C. W.A.S.H.N., so that would be Washington, um, is in the corner of that All right, corner. so I just had another theory kind of hit my... Okay. brain here you know with all the traveling of this thing how did we 100 percent know for sure that the document that is at the national archives is the actual document penned by matlack matlack and signed by all those how do we know that 100 percent sure we don't it could be a copy we do have all those famous people in history who we said were wonderful, great men who were in charge of it. Well, we know the original has the date on the back of it. We know that. Mm-hmm. But somebody could have wrote that on there. You know? I, I don't know. There wasn't... It seems to me that security of that document <laughs> was compromised or could have been compromised several times. It could have been. It could so have somebody been. sitting in their house somewhere could have the original, 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 but they could never prove it. Anyways. Yeah. I digress. Well. It's getting late. In any case, <laughs> uh, the Tyler copies, um, <coughs> he ended up keeping a logbook for where he took orders for copies of it. And um, it's actually surviving today. That logbook is it's still around today, and it's in the hands of the Albert H. Small Declaration of Independence Collection. And uh, some of the names that are listed as purchasing a copy from him, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, John Quincy Adams... They're all in this book as signing, hey, I want to have a copy of this. It turns out that he made, apparently, at least 1,694 copies that he wrote out, or he made and sold on paper, 40 of them that he sold on vellum, and three that he did on silk, and three that he did on linen. So he was even putting them on a different, different met, um, Different types of sources of material. I think that's kind of cool. Um, now, Tyler had a business rival called John Bins. So I had mentioned that there was the Bins version. And now, you said, too, that they used to be partners at one time? I, I read somewhere along the line that they were partners at one point, and then they weren't. I don't know. Um, but supposedly, at the time that these copies were being made, they were rivals. Mm-hmm. Now I can imagine that would be a big deal. You know what I mean? To be the official copier of the... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So Tyler didn't start it as soon as Binns did. Binns actually started making his copy a year before Tyler did, but he didn't finish it till after Tyler did. So Tyler gets all the notoriety for it, you know, and Binns doesn't. But Binns actually commissioned pictures of some individuals to be put onto his copies. So that made his even, you know, an exciting one as well. So he got some some business out of it. It wasn't just Tyler because his had pictures. So that was kind of cool. Um, of course, there were lots of other um, things that happened, lots of other copies that were made. But this is these are the ones that happened at this time period.
So, the next portion of the uh, declaration is from 1841 to 1876. And uh, this is going to be when Daniel Webster is actually the Secretary of State. And he writes to the Commissioner of Patents. The guy who was the Commissioner of Patents was Henry Ellsworth. Daniel Webster, was he related to? Noah Webster? No. I'm not sure if they were related or not. Something we could look up. Yeah. In case you don't know who Noah Webster was, I mean, kind of famous. He was the guy that actually wrote the dictionary, Webster Dictionary, but... Yeah. Okay. Anyways, Um, sorry. Anyways, he writes to the the guy in charge of patents, and he does this because the guy who's getting to do the patents is going to be occupying a new building. Now we know it is the National Portrait Gallery. However, at the time, it was going to be the location for the patent office. And so having learned that there is this new building, he goes ahead and he asks if there are any um, accommodations that would be suitable there in that patent office for the safekeeping and exhibition of various articles deposited in the department. And that would allow visitors to actually see this so people could come there and see it. He ends up passing this along um, with an inventory list of the things that they want to pass, and the sixth item on the list is the Declaration of Independence. You're, I saw you typing. Did you find uh, any information about the Websters? They're not related. Aww. They're not related. The the name migrated to America in the 17th century, but they are not. There's no relationship between Noah and Daniel. Interesting. Okay, well, back to where is this declaration going? So now it's still in it's still in Washington, but we're leaving the uh, Secretary of State, and now he's passing it off to the Patent Office for safekeeping there. Now, in this new building, um, it was a white stone structure and it was on 7th and F streets and the declaration and Washington's commission... That would be a safe place to put it, the patent office, because they got to keep those documents. Kind of. Mm-hmm. Kind of. And I say kind of because, well, where they put it didn't work out so well. Um <coughs> And some things that may have happened to it while it was there, again, didn't help. Really? Out. Yeah, yeah. It was it was not a good time for the declaration. Well, well then I retract my <laughs> statement. So the declaration and Washington's, Washington's commission as commander-in-chief were sent there, and they were mounted together in a single frame. And then it was hung on a wall opposite a window so that it was offered a nice exposure to the sunlight. So they did it on purpose. And they left it there for 30, 35 years. Oh, dear Lord. 35 years in the sunlight because the window's right opposite it, so it got a nice, you know, everybody could see it. It was always light showing on it. Oh, we didn't know back then that the sun was bad. <laughs> bad. Wow. Yeah. Now, during this time period is also when potentially we had some additional damage besides sunlight to it because supposedly the anesthetic copy um, Ooh, okay. was done at this time as well. And so um, they again did the wet treatment okay. <laughs> with chemicals. All right, hold on just a second right there. I know you've got a lot more, okay, but I know, but I, we're probably going to spend some time on that anesthetic copy, okay? But I think what we're going to do, um, we're, we're over an hour already on this. I think we're going to do a part two. Okay, a part two. Because you you have a lot more. I do have stuff. stuff. Is actually getting it's getting getting deep. So I think for this one, um, we're going to kind of wrap it up, and then we'll do a part two, and we'll we'll publish them both at the same time. Um, But normally, what we do at the end of our um, podcast is we say how people can get a hold of us. Uh, We don't have any correspondence from the last one yet that I know of. I haven't checked to be honest with you. Um, But please. If you have any comments, questions, or any other topics you would like to hear, um, 
please go to our website, which is untoldhistoryrevealed.blogspot.com. And if you scroll down on the right-hand side, there's a form where you can send us an email message. And uh, we did receive one, and we had a section in our last podcast where we uh, talked about that email. But um, I would love to get a lot more. How about you? Absolutely. Yeah, we want to hear from you out there. So if you've heard of this stuff before or have anything you'd like to add, um, please go to our website and, uh, and send us a message. Get a hold of us. Okay, so um, we're going to stop this recording and we'll move on to part two of the Traveling Declaration. So until then. Thanks for listening.